Oh, uh, one last disclaimer. I'm only half count as a person of color, so <laughs> race issues may come up and you're going to be in the, the position of speaking for all black people. So just just be aware of that. <laughs> all right. Okay, here we go. Stop the laughing. In an age of myth and legend, the world trembles before the power of Necron. Master of evil, ruler of ice. Against him stand Tigra, princess of Firekeep, and captive of the ice demons, Larn. Tigra! Last of a mighty warrior tribe. And her only hope of escape. And Dark Wolf, mysterious avenger, and sworn enemy of the ice tyrant. Their courage will be tested. The challenge must be met. The final battle between the armies of the cold and the keepers of the flame is about to begin. Fire and ice. From the visual imagination of Ralph Bakshi and the dazzling artistry of Frank Frazetta. A fantasy adventure from 20th Century Fox. have been trying to talk my son down from his chess addiction. He's obsessed with uh, this YouTube channel called Gotham Chess, which is actually very entertaining. A lot of it is having different chess robots face off against each other. Uh, the robot apocalypse is coming because they are smart and creative and we're all doomed. But more importantly, uh, it's getting to the point where he's playing, you know, 10 or more games a day and not taking his losses particularly well. So I'm in the process of trying to tell him that there's more to life than just chess, but we'll see how that goes. That's funny because I quit chess as soon as computers came along and they were able to beat humans. Then I was like, okay, it's over. Like there, you know, that's <laughs> it. There's no point. So it's, fun revisiting another Bakshi film. And I think we spent a good amount of time on Bakshi's career in our previous episode on the animated Lord of the Rings film, which he created in 1978. This film shows some of the same sorts of craft that he was working on then. This film, though, is entirely rotoscoped. You may remember that Lord of the Rings had some very interesting, just like straight out live action thrown into the middle of the otherwise rotoscoped animation. This is a much more consistent feel for Bakshi. And a lot of people note that this, this is actually kind of stands out as being more polished than some of his other work, even though the storytelling perhaps is not quite as fanciful or out there as things like Fritz the Cat. But um, this... This film involved body doubles. Sometimes they were the same as the voice actors, but often the voice the voicing was done afterwards. And in some of the DVD special features for the film, uh, Necron's live action body double, uh, Sean Hannon, 
reads from his production diary, which has some really hilarious moments. But but one that just sort of typifies it is he writes, ah, sword fights. It would seem I am destined throughout my career to ever keep the handle of my sword warm, <laughs> which reads strangely sexual. <laughs> but anyway, um, so it seems like folks were having some interesting times behind the scenes. But of course, the main star is the artistry, the paintings throughout. Uh, Thomas Kincaid actually worked on some of the backgrounds to the various scenes. This strikes me as odd because I don't really think of this style as being like Kincaid's, but this was still early in Kincaid's career. Uh, there's a lot of influence from Conan the Barbarian in this film, of course. Uh, the screenplay was written by Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas, both of whom who had written Conan stories for Marvel. And Frank Franzetta, one of the main artistic forces for, for the characters, had a very strong background doing cover art for comics and, and comics as well, but especially working on Conan the Barbarian and his vision of those characters basically redefined the sword and sorcery genre. And his vision of what that world looks like is more or less what the popular imagination now thinks of it's Franzetta's vision. He got a start actually by painting a portrait of Ringo Starr, a, a caricature for Mad Magazine, which caught the attention of United Artists. Uh, they liked his style and they asked him to do a couple movie posters, including uh, What's New Pussycat was one of the big ones. So so you'll recognize, you know, he he's done a lot of movie posters. He's he's worked in comics and he's also done some cover art, cover art for albums, uh, different different kinds of rock music um so it's his vision we really have to thank that and the impossible body double they found to play tigra cynthia leek who i think you know other than franzetta she probably has the most lasting impression that people will have of the film let's all go to the lobby let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat so in the film, Tigra gathers edible red berries. We have no idea what these berries are, but I thought it would be appropriate to snack on berries during this film. And since it is a barbarian movie, I chose barberries. Uh. According to Wikipedia, <laughs> barberries are native to Central and Southern Europe, Northwest Africa, and Western Asia. And it's also naturalized in Northern Europe, the British Isles, and North America, and it's cultivated in numerous countries. Barberries come from barbarous vulgaris shrubs. The shrubs are grown for their ornamental leaves, yellow flowers, and red or blue-black berries. Many of the species have spines on the shoots and the margins of the leaves, so barberries bushes they're commonly used as pedestrian barriers and planted below windows and hedges to prevent burglars mm -hmm. and uh, they're also re resistant to predation by deer the thorns of the barberry shrub have been used to clean ancient gold coins since they're soft enough that they won't damage the surface but will remove corrosion and debris and sometimes the acidic young leaves are chewed on for refreshment by hikers Berberis species can infect wheat with the fungus stem rust. 
For this reason, imports to the United States are forbidden and cultivation of B. vulgaris is prohibited in Canada, Michigan, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. What? <laughs> yes, it is banned in New Hampshire. But not Vermont. Vermont, <laughs> but not you know, Vermont. go crazy. <laughs> go crazy. Berberis vulgaris produces large crops of edible berries rich in vitamin C with a sharp acid flavor. Commercial production is limited because the thorny shrubs make it difficult to harvest. In Europe, for many centuries, the berries were used for culinary purposes, the way citrus peel is today. And the country in which they are still most widely used is Iran, where the berries are common in Persian cuisine, such as pilaf or for flavoring poultry. In Russia and Eastern Europe, sometimes it's used in jams as a source of pectin, especially with other mixed berries. And an extract of barberries is common in flavoring soft drinks, candies, and sweets. You can buy dried barberries online, ready for snacking. And that's what I snacked on. I snacked on Japanese barberries, but, you know, they're cultivated all over the place for that reason in small batches. That's my recommendation for a, a barbarian film, Barberries. Can I introduce another berry possibility? Um, Go ahead. So another berry you can get from the internet is M berries. These magic berries. It's, I don't think really a berry, but uh, sort of possibly derived from one. But it's this substance that you put on your tongue and then you wait like 30 minutes and it completely changes your uh, taste bud profile. So, oh, that's called LSD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so these M berries, you can—they're not very expensive, um, but it can make for a fun afternoon. Lemons, for instance, you know, you can suck on just a raw lemon, and it tastes like sweet lemonade. You can eat things that are insanely hot and spicy and actually taste what the th what the pepper is underneath, you know, kind of a sweeter heat. So makes for a fun afternoon, almost as trippy as watching Fire and Ice. Okay. Well, before we go any further, I got to say we have a guest on the show today. William Raymond Bronson. Will Bronson and I go back... A long time. I don't know when we first met. It was in kindergarten, but we were we were in different classrooms. So it wasn't until about 1979 that we were in the same classroom together in like, uh, what would that have been? Fourth grade. And we started playing Dungeons and Dragons together. And so we have been playing Dungeons and Dragons ever since first edition so since we're doing a series on this kind of stuff, I figured he would be a good person to bring in on this. Welcome, Will. Hi, thank you. Woo! Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, so are you guys ready to jump into talking about fire and ice? Oh boy. Yep. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So the first thing I want to say is just the look and feel of this is amazing. The gorgeous watercolor backdrops. The foley is amazing sounding. Like all every little footstep you hear, but it's at the right level. So like if they're on stone versus ice, you know, the, the sound is different. Like the foley is amazing. And then the movement is super realistic 
for an animated film more realistic than anime because you know they rotoscoped the whole thing right um yeah but yeah it is one of the most realistically animated films i've ever seen yeah well certainly for the time period i mean rotoscoping has really only been used a handful of times since and scanner darkly i don't think they really tried to make it realistic but you're right i mean the proportions are are all right even if sometimes ridiculous <laughs> well they i mean they're real <laughs> human proportions right they're, they're yeah. real mo- real people like i've seen the people they're real people so <laughs> uh i just want to you know interject here i the, i, I want to say that i think uh the, the the only time that comes more uh, recently and more mainstream, I think Anastasia, maybe they use some rotoscoping in that. Um, and as far as the bodies, well, as my wife put it, she's like, I don't think I've ever seen this many asses in a, <laughs> in a cartoon movie. <laughs> Notably, they were mostly men. I mean, it was a real, uh, uh, yeah, it was mostly guys because there were only six women in the entire movie. <laughs> Uh, one of the reviewers had mentioned the objectification and uh, they were talking about Tigra, but they're like, but really, honestly, this is an equal opportunity to objectify her because the number of male butts in the camera face, like right in the camera was. <laughs> and I think that's just goes to the fact that Frazetta, like a lot of like, he is a modern illustrator. But he comes from a classical realist tradition. That's why it's magical realism, right? Uh, he comes from a realist tradition. And like a lot of realist fine art painters, he's pretty obsessed with the human form, right? So you get that all over the place in this. We start off with a little bit of backstory about the evil queen, Juliana, and her son, Necron. Classic setup of you know the evil queen and... And the son who's a necromancer, you know, just like any mother-son tale. (laughs) (laughs) And it's clear they're up to no good. They are trying to take over the world, albeit as peacefully as possible. At their disposal, they have powers that are turning everything into ice. And then also a whole delegation of troglodyte Neanderthals. We'll we'll get to them. (laughs) But... The initial conflict starts when they send their emissaries to negotiate basically a surrender by the last holdout, which is Gerald and his lava people. And Fire Keep. Fire Keep. Um, <laughs> and and that negotiation they they already anticipate isn't gonna go well. So they send some kidnappers along to sweeten the deal by grabbing Tigra to use as leverage and and that is where our adventure begins well it's not just to use as leverage necron's mother juliana wants an heir and wants necron to marry tigra so that's also plays into this we don't want to get too far ahead but uh i think we can say from the very beginning or even before we get to um you know them singing this delegation when he is using his powers um, it just looks like an ice gasm. I mean, they show him <laughs> spasming, and then the ice just thrusts up into the air, and it comes down and crushes the 
the freemen uh, who are trying to, you know, uh, it's, um, it's way over the top and it's, wow, uh, very blatant. But this is the first time of a part where they say, okay, you know, we're going to associate um, this Margaret type character, you know, because she's sort of a LaFay type character, mm-hmm. at least in the uh, pop culture sense. But anyway, we're going to associate him with sort of a sexual deviancy. I'm, I, maybe I'm reading something into it, but I think we get more of that later on. Meanwhile, the armies of Necron are destroying town after town, and one survivor of these clashes is Larn, who is our barbarian hero. He plays dead, ends up escaping, and he eventually meets up with Tigra. After a series of encounters with different monsters... It was actually something I I really kind of enjoyed about Tigra's, you know, escape and then like continually hiding from the band of troglodytes that were sent to kidnap her, lost her, have to find her again. And that every time she finds a new place to hide, there's some new monster that is is there to like both threaten her and also, you know, prevent her capture. Tigra multiple times escapes these captors and this is when my wife was like behind me you know i'm watching it and i didn't even know she was behind me and i just hear this is seriously creepy (laughs) and i'm like oh great it's gonna be a feminism rant right because like she this is the point where she like has just escaped them a second time and she's sort of using her sexuality before she's She's in a, uh, a lake or something, and then she she eventually dives down and, and escapes them through the water. But in that moment, it's a very sexual moment and stuff like that. And I thought for sure that's what she's going to say. But that's not what she said. She Her complaint was, she's like, all the bad guys are dark-skinned. And um, <laughs> I'm a little, uh, yes, yes. I think that it was a little insensitive the way they chose this, but also I need to defend it for a couple of reasons too. One is that the color on this on modern video is a little bit off. So they're actually supposed to be olive green ish color. Also, they were, uh, I think what this movie is trying to do is an alternate history during the ice age. And it's supposed to be like crow magnons and Neanderthals. And the Neanderthals are being controlled by Necron. Also, I want to point out that, the whitest people are the most evil, right? So ne- Necron, like Juliana and the witch, who we'll get to in a moment, are like white. And then as you go, and then as you go down the spectrum, then there's Tigra, and then there's like Larn, and then there's Dark Wolf, who we'll get to in a minute, who's like, and then there's the Neanderthals. Um, so I'm not really sure. Also, uh, when these things are made, usually the colorist is a totally separate person from the artist, as was the case with this. And I forget her name, but she may not have even seen the whole plot, known everything. She's just like, what color are Neanderthals? And like, okay, you know. Um, Anyway, that's kind of my take on it. It's not a total excuse for it because it the way it is now, it just doesn't fly. It, It comes off as racist. But... Well, I, I I definitely have to weigh in. Um, 
so my kid walked in while we were watching. Oh, well, we need to let, we since this is an audio podcast only, we should let people know that um, Will is black and his son is mixed. All right, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Teddy walks in and, and just sees a moment of it. And he's like, what are you guys watching? <laughs> Seems kind of racist. And we're just dying <laughs> Because literally, they refer to them as subhumans. Um, and they all have, you know, not only do they have dark skin, but they have uh, even their features and their hairstyles, that, you know, which they actually have a great variety of. I will give them that because they have a huge variety, but they're all dark skin. They have, but they also have features and hairstyles that are of uh, colored people. Whereas, you know, I mean, our hero is blonde haired and blue eyes. There is an exception, though. <laughs> the Tonto of our film, Dark Wolf is the absolute badass totally more of a badass than uh lorne and he's but he's sort of dark-skinned so he gets a pass but is is he really the tonto or is he the real hero and like lauren is the tonto no because you know tonto never gets the girl so yeah he's the tonto he's the one who's actually doing all the work and you know yeah so (laughs) maybe he's the han okay i've I've also that could be it he could be han well, well, the first time we see him, well, we'll get to when we see him because first I got to go to like her escape. Oh yeah. So she escapes through the water. She meets up with Larn. That's when they have the red berries and stuff by the side of the pool. And eventually like the subhuman, uh, I, I think they call them Necron's dogs come to get her again. And the reason that he's not able to defend her is because he gets attacked by... <laughs> And there goes the shark meter, a giant, it's actually more of a squid type tentacle monster than a shark, but it it still pings on our shark meter. Ah, Um, So we get this, this great tentacle monster underwater battle thing while she's being kidnapped up above ground. By the way, I want to say on the whole feminism thing too, it's like, do you notice that he never rescues her? Like never once, like she always <laughs> escapes on her own every time. She like gets captured like three or four times in this film, but every time she escapes through her own means, you know. Yeah, mostly that is the way. And well, I think maybe the very last one, um, and even then, she comes to rescue him. Yeah. So you know, in fairness. Yep. I'm just curious. Is the reason why she's not wearing any clothes because she comes from the fire keep and, and it's just like hot there all the time. So she, it's basically like she's, she's going from Miami to New Hampshire in this story. And I'm watching her just thinking like, how, how is this a fashion choice? I mean, she had like a little nightgown in the beginning that gets ripped off pretty quickly, but she's basically wearing a thong bikini the entire film. She was in her bedroom. They kidnapped her from bed. She was literally in bed when they kidnapped her. All right. So, (laughs) I mean, she could have been naked, I guess. It could have, it could have been slightly worse, but it seems like, I mean, it must be just very hot where she is in order to sleep in that little. (laughs) They live in a volcano. How much? (laughs) Like you don't get any hotter than that. Okay. This came up when we were watching. Okay. So I, I, I have my takes and also two other takes. Teddy's point was, look, if she, why does she even have to wear a top? Nobody else who's wearing a, a bikini bottom is wearing a top. So why even bother with it? That's number one. Um, you know, and that's real equality. If, if she has to wear a top, they should all have to wear a bikini top. And if not, then she shouldn't have to wear that either. 
And then um, my wife did say, oh, well, it's, it's hot where they were. I'm like, her dad wears fur. Okay. So, you know, we'll get to her dad later because that guy sucks. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, he, she, she is, um, she, she, I don't think the term fan service necessarily existed then, but that is what we're getting. It is what it is. We, we are, rather than make excuses for it, we say, we accept these things as they are and, you know, move on from there. Hey, at least it's not a chainmail bikini, right? <laughs> <laughs> Those things pinch. They really do. After they're separated like this, Batman shows up, right? So, yes. So, so like we see on a hillside, yes, dar- this character Dark Wolf, who I swear to God is Death Dealer. Yes, that's it. As soon as you see it, you're like, oh, that's the Molly Hatchet. That's Molly Hatchet's first album cover. Yep. Any guy that grew up from that era will (laughs) automatically recognize Death Dealer, which is Frank Frazetta's most famous painting of all time. And that is another form of fan service. Yes. They're like, we're going to throw in this obvious reference to Death Dealer, which is a different whole character that got spun off. And eventually, like, comics were written by um, Glenn Danzig. Oh, wow. Formerly of the Misfits. Yeah. And uh, you're right. The Molly Hatchet cover is the Death Dealer painting. There's actually four or five versions of the Death Dealer painting that Frazetta made. I have never once seen one in real life. It's one of my dreams to go to the Frazetta Museum and see it. But yeah. And the last time we see him again at the end, he will also be in the Death Dealer pose before the (laughs) movie ends. So Dark Wolf has his own vendetta against Necron. And so he's going to join Larn. I guess we should back up to how Larn found out what happened to Tigra. Tigra, after another one of her escapes from the, <laughs> the, the Neanderthals, she comes upon a hut in the woods, right? Mm. And what, there's a woman that lives in this hut in the wilderness. Whenever there's a woman that lives in a hut in a wilderness, you can bet she's a witch, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This seemed right out of Conan. Just <laughs> first, the witch tries to seduce her or something like that. It seemed like it, right? And then, yeah. like, uh, once she puts her to sleep, the witch, whose name is Roleal, sends her son, this big hulking monstrosity ogre type thing, to go get Necron's dogs and bring them here because she wants to use Tigra as a bargaining chip. Can we talk about what Roleal's? like intentions are you know because it seemed like it was like possibly sexual or possibly like you know i'm gonna drain her life force energy in order to stay eternally young like we don't know but the moment of disappointment that she has when she finds out that this tigra isn't just a nobody that she can disappear (laughs) like like that it's one of the finest or like most actingest moments in the film (laughs) Yes, you're right. You're right. She's like, ah, oh, yeah. Okay. So this, and also this is our, the first time I believe. Okay. Uh, let me see that this is, she's going to be the, uh, I think the fifth female character. Um, the first time, uh, two female characters are in the same scene and they have a conversation oh. and they, of course they talk about the dude. So they fail the Bechtel. Um, but you know, whatever. Uh, um, I, I'm like, I'm listening to her. I'm like, you know, that's not going to work, right? You know, you, you, you know, you're, you, 
Okay, well, go ahead and do your evil plan. But uh, I, I, I liked her as a character, and I liked you even better in just a, in just a little bit, which we'll get, get to in a moment. She sends her son to go bring uh, Necron's minions, and they come, and then I didn't see this coming. They just kill her. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that didn't work out the way she planned. They burn it to the ground. When Larn comes upon this later on, the uh, skeleton of Raleel rises up and sort of talks to him yes. and tells him, uh, you know, wh- what happened to her. He convinces the skeleton, you know, out of revenge to tell him where they took her. So he agrees to get revenge for her and get uh, Tigra back. And so after that, he then goes off and that's when he meets up with uh, with. Uh, Dark Wolf for the first time. This was a nice magical moment. It it felt magical, felt like you know horrific. Uh, I could see him doing the talking, and I I liked it. I, I liked her character. Actually, I would love to play her character with a minion, but that's a whole other story. We're getting into D and D stuff now. But yeah, the reanimated corpse here. This would be the equivalent of the Psychic Wars scene in Heavy Metal, the Bernie Wrightson part with the B fifty two or whatever. Anyway. Gerald sends Prince Taro to Necron to bargain for Tigra's release. <laughs> I should say, actually, they take they take her by ship back. So apparently there's a yeah. sea route there, too. And Larn stows away, and that's how he gets there. So... That's what I was talking about. The he, he stows away and and uh, on that ship, sort of a, almost like an Indiana Jones hanging off the uh, periscope. Which I, really, how did that really work anyway? But anyway, yeah, it's, a, it's <laughs> reminds me of that. You know, uh, gives him some badass creds. You know, but yeah, yeah, I like that part. All right, Necron denies the release, and he makes them fight each other. He again does his orgasmic magic thing, and like <laughs> makes them kill all kill each other, and then the last guy, who is actually tigra's brother kill himself and then they toss them into the body pit somewhere down in the cave there's a place where they just throw all the bodies and uh they throw the body there including tigra at this point because she's been Uh, she's been presented to necron by by the mom saying like hey you know i found you a bride and he's like yeah i'm not interested mom and they they have an argument and then he becomes interested when the brother is like i'm here to rescue my sister and then he's like oh yeah yeah, no now now this is going to be fun like now now i am like interested in more suffering for more people (laughs) but uh so she's down in the pit too it's super misogynistic it's like you know he when when he's presented with her he's like what do i want with this you know i mean like you know again this implies that what you know basically he's Whatever he's into, it's not women, and uh, you know, um, and power or whatever. He's he, he's disgusted. His mom's like, oh, "Come on, I want a kid. I want. Don't you want an heir?" And she's, he's like, "No, get this thing away." Some from Some things are the same no matter what the era, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then and then and you know, the, and the thing is, when it comes to uh, you know, oh, you showed up. You want looking for your sister. You care about her. Oh well. Now she's just a bargain. I'm not even. I'm not gonna. I am not actually going to sleep with her. But the threat of raping her is what I'm going to use against you, as I toy with you because I'm not even planning on. No, you're. I'm. I'm just. I'm just messing with you. I just. I'm just hateful. Again, it reminds yeah. me of of heavy metal because this whole segment 
reminds me a lot of the Den of Earth uh, segment yes. from Heavy Metal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another animated sword and sorcery thing. Before they, they're done with her and they toss her into the body pit, she does the can't we all just get along thing with him. Yeah. <laughs> Which trying to reason with the big bad never works, right? I think Bakshi's hippie side had to had to be expressed somewhere somehow, and so there, and we get it a little later <laughs> at the end. But like, so they throw the hippie Tigra into the pit, and like when she wakes up and sees her dead brother next to her, we get the no. <laughs> you knew that had to happen sooner or later. Okay. Meanwhile, Dark Wolf has one of the coolest fight scenes in the movie where it's all foggy and he's fighting the uh, Neanderthals and they'll just, they just come out of the fog and he kills one and then turns around another one comes out of the fog and he kills that one. I thought that was a really cool scene. Isn't this where he dismisses the, you know, the Lauren, like the kid, nah, you get out of here. I'm going to handle what these hell these guys get out of here. You know, you go find the girl and he's like, I'm just going to murder all these guys by myself. Cause I am, that badass um, he's batman he's like prehistoric batman <laughs> he is yeah he's the one man he's he's it's like if you if you you know it's funny because uh, depending on your um age as a young man or where you were at as a young man you might on the one hand want to be Lorne because he's obviously kicking the girl on the other hand you might want to be dark wolf because everyone wants to be dark wolf. dark wolf is Han yeah, Solo, the like the other guy's luke you know it's like <laughs> right <laughs> No, I'm not really sure, you know, how, I'm not really sure how this would have come across to a young woman, to be perfectly honest. Oh, a, a young woman like me? <laughs> yeah, well, what do you, how do you think that would come across to you? I mean, like, when you're, like, I don't know, 13 or 14? Um, well, okay, so I was definitely always, like, Team Han Solo. Like, never had any interest in Luke, <laughs> and I still don't. And so I think, yeah, I think here, you know, Dark Dark Wolf has my vote. He has my interest. Larn, I'm sort of like, yeah, fine. Like, you're going to end up with a princess. Like, whatever. Like, no interest. Tell me about Dark Wolf's story. Like, what's he up to later? <laughs> yeah, yeah, see, I could have predicted that. <laughs> They eventually get to the point where they have to have an all-out assault. They go to Gerald and convince him, you know, Larn and Dark Wolf, who did manage to escape from Necron, you know, they convince him to let them use the dragon hawks, which are basically pterosaurs. And like they're X Wings. They, yeah, they're X Wings. So they take Pterodactyl X Wings. Just <laughs> They're definitely pterodactyls. <laughs> the, so the, it's a flying mount, you know, assault with eight guys, basically Larn, Dark Wolf, and six red shirts. And all the red shirts get killed, but both Larn <laughs> and Dark Wolf manage to make it. Larn rescues Tigra, while Dark Wolf takes care of Necron. Yes. Which, by the way, I got to say, this is why he's the real hero of this, because he's the guy that defeats the big bad. Oh, yeah. This fight scene with Necron, it's animation. So they could have shown Necron's magic any way they wanted to depict it. Yeah. There's no limitations to their VFX. And they chose to make it invisible. Yeah. Yeah which I thought was a very interesting choice given they could have drawn anything in and they just chose to have it be like 
sort of invisible magic, which is the way later on the Lord of the Rings would do it with Gandalf and Saruman and stuff like that. But I thought that was kind of interesting that they showed some restraint there and said, yeah, we're just going to make it invisible. Well, I think it's because there are such strong visual elements to the effects of the power that, you know, like adding in like laser light force shooting out of something would have possibly lessened it. But like the huge wall of ice that comes up, it makes you believe in the strength of the power, even if you can't see it. I think the acting sells it. I think that's, they. they I mean, we did skip over, um, you know, when Lauren sneaks in and he takes a pot shot at him. He's like, oh, I'm intrigued by you. And then he, you know, he he does the thing where he puts, you know, it's like, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna have a duel. And it's and maybe I'm I'm reading things into it. it just seems very homoerotic. <laughs> and he, he they fight until he and Lauren gets a cut in on him. He's like, all right, now we're not messing around anymore. He just uses his magic. Um, I think we call it water bending now because he controls his blood. But anyway, he, he <laughs> controls him. You know, makes him beat the crap out of himself or whatever. And that it basically he you get to see the magic expressed through how the bodies react. And I think it works great. I love it. I mean, actually I, I wish more of that. As a matter of fact, I, I know we're on a geek thing. So I got to say this, the more star Wars does less flashy space magic, the better it is. Mm-hmm. And so in, th- in this case, they did not do any flashy space magic or magic. They just showed how it affected people. And that was terrifying enough. Agreed. So the last thing I want to say is that despite the fact that we get Dark Wolf defeating Necron and Larn rescuing uh, Tigra, I keep hearing Tigra and Bunny in my head. Um, <laughs> they got the boom. Got the boom. Oh, okay. uh, anyway, uh, the despite that, all that, Gerald still decides to open the floodgates on the lava and like, like <laughs> drown everything in lava. Is like, oh, you know, glaciers getting too close. They obviously must have failed or who knows what. Open the floodgates. They open the floodgates of lava and like destroy all the encroaching glacier and like humanity is saved. Yeah. Well, you know, which tells you what? That he didn't need to send his son to his death. <laughs> he could have just released the lava from the beginning. He could have just said, like, well, when they come across, when they get close enough, I'll release the lava. Bada bing, bada boom. Oh, also, if he had, I don't know, put some bars on his daughter's window, then, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But, you know, hey, you know, somebody has to carry the idiot ball for the plot to go forward. I I don't think anyone expected that someone would come kidnap the princess out of the volcano, right? I mean, well, yeah. How often has that happened before, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I I see what you're saying there. (laughs) <laughs> all right uh i think uh we're, we're running out of time so we gotta wrap things up here the animation the fights those were almost all great the 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 squid fight was a little iffy but everything else was really good you know the chase scenes were good the way they moved across the ice was good there was so much good stuff there if we got anything wrong if you think that there's something else we got to say about fire and ice that we did not already say you can write us at gc8 podcast that's letter g letter c number eight podcast at gmail.com tell a friend about us rate review subscribe all that kind of stuff and until next time this is eric this is johanna it's me will signing off
that's it. As soon as you see it, you're like, oh, that's the Molly Hatchet. That's Molly Hatchet's first album cover. 